Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask that you speak, that you remind us of the truth of who you are and what you've done. Father, I pray that you would point us in the direction of hope. Father, I pray for anybody walking in this morning uh, and, they're, and they're carrying around a heavy weight. You know, a lot of it has to do with maybe um, holiday season and, and time with family uh, that maybe wasn't so good. I pray that this morning they would be able to lift or lay down their burdens and, uh, and lift you up. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that the words people hear now are yours and not mine. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can have a seat. Um, happy Thanksgiving. Can I still say that? Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas as we roll from you know, one holiday into, uh, into the next. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, so you can turn there uh, with me now. How are you holding up? How are you doing? Uh, you walk into a room this morning that is, uh, it, it's decorated for the, the holiday season, right? The Advent season has begun, and this is the first week of, of Advent. And, and, uh, and this, this beautiful being, by the way, uh, the, the Branches House Church is, is responsible uh, for this. They did a beautiful job. Um, but we walk into a, to a room that's, that's beautifully uh, decorated, and, and, and we see and we know Christmas is upon us. And, and, and what does that do in you? How do you feel about it? How are you holding up? Um, the, the reality is, is that for, for maybe many of you, um, this, is, this is beautiful. There's a, there's a lot of expectation and there's a lot of excitement and there's joy uh, that you're looking forward to in the Christmas season. You're looking forward to you know, the next few weeks of, of experiencing all that this season has to offer and the warmth and the connectedness of a relationship. And, and there's, there's nothing but positive sort of feeling that, you, that you're experiencing. And yet, maybe some of you are not. Maybe, maybe some of you are not. And I was in a meeting um, earlier this week um, with, with people in the community, and, and we was in this, this conference room that had just been decorated for Christmas, and there was this, this big old tree in the corner. And, and, and around the table, almost every single one of them had just like negative things to say. They, they, they were looking at, at Christmas uh, with, with gloom and doom, and like it, they were dreading it. Um, and, and one individual made a comment about, you know, the, the Christmas tree. And I just sort of said jokingly to them, I said, are you a, are you a Scrooge? And he just sort of laughed. He says, no, I'm, I'm more of a Grinch. And then he got really serious. And he said, you know, if you knew my in-laws, you'd understand. If you knew my in-laws, then you'd, you'd understand. And, and the reality is this, that, that for a lot of us, um, the, the holidays are a positive thing. Uh, but for a lot of us, it's a negative thing. And we experience the holidays, you know, just like, not just annually, not just like from year to year, but like perennially, we, we have these feelings that carry over from year to year to year. And so for some, uh, from year to year to year, it's positive, but for others, it's, it's, it's negative from year to year to year. And, and so much of that actually has to do with family. I think the common denominator for, for many of us is this issue of, of, of family and how we experience family and how family shapes us, and how uh, family uh, helps us see or, or, or maybe hinders the way we see uh, the, the world in the holidays. And so um, maybe for some of you this morning, uh, you know, the, this event of four days ago, this Thanksgiving uh, meal that we, we, we celebrated, uh, maybe for some of you that brought to the surface some stuff worth dealing with. 
Uh, maybe for some of you, you, uh, you didn't get a chance to go home for Thanksgiving. You didn't get a chance to go be with that family for Thanksgiving. And, and because of that, you're feeling a little isolated. You're feeling a little bit lonely as a result of that. And, and, and in a way, that, that's positive because you missed something that you love, right? Maybe uh, those of you got to, to gather around that, that family uh, or, or, or that table with your family, uh, maybe, it was, um, maybe it was like walking on eggshells. Maybe it was kind of uncomfortable. Maybe it was a day where you just couldn't wait to get to the end of it because it sort of felt like you were experiencing a cold war. Like there's all these issues that people have around the table and don't broach that subject and don't talk about this thing and stay away from, you know, that polit- political statement or that ideology. Like just, just there's this big cold war and you're just hoping to get through the day without an explosion. Maybe you didn't experience the cold war. Maybe you got the hot war. And maybe there wasn't any, anyone who was trying to, to get through the day without an explosion. As people are lobbing grenades at one another, and they want to prove how right they are and how wrong somebody else at the table is. And it's all about, uh, it's all about their truth, but there's no tenderness, there's no love, there's no affection for the, the family members sitting there. It feels like a war. Maybe uh, some of you, you have family members and you agree about everything. And so you didn't experience any kind of war, but you did experience a sort of sense of grief around the table. You looked around that table and you realized that there were people that were, that were not there that were supposed to be there. And maybe your family experienced a divorce this year. And maybe there was someone who was once called a son or was once called a, a, a brother or once called a daughter or once called a sister who's not there now because a marriage ended and there's a hole missing. Or maybe it's, it's a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter and they're out finding themselves or losing themselves to addiction and they weren't there. Or maybe it's a more permanent loss. Maybe you looked around the table and there was somebody there that that has passed away. And maybe this is your first holiday without them or maybe it's your 20th. And the grief comes back year after year after year. And though it lessens, it's still present and it's most acute around the holiday table. You see what's missing. Maybe for some of you, what you're experiencing is not the loss or, or what or who wasn't there, but what was brought to the table that maybe shouldn't have been. As people bring their baggage, as people bring the, the sins that they've committed and the consequences of them, or the sins that have been committed against them and the consequences of them. And whether that's their, their addiction or whether that's uh, their trauma, or whether that's, that that's bitterness and it's hurt, or maybe that stems from abuse or, or, or mental illness, like a whole host of variables of things that people bring to the table, and it weighs heavily on them, and because you love them, it weighs heavily on you too. You look at the family, and, and then the reality is, it's like you could have the healthiest of families. You could have the most spiritually, emotionally healthy family, and yet you're still going to discover there's brokenness there. Even the best of families experience brokenness and sin and pain, even the best of ones. And and, and the question that you might have this morning after after spending time with that family is, is, is there hope for this? Is there hope for me? Is there hope for my family? Is there hope for the world? There's eight billion of us now walking around on this planet. So much division, so much hate, and so much wrong in the world. Is there hope for the, the, the human family? Well, the answer this morning is yes. Profoundly yes, there's hope. And the hope, it comes in sort of an obscure package. 
it comes with the opening lines of the New Testament. Matthew wrote this gospel, and he, he's writing about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of this man named Jesus, and he begins it with a genealogy. Now, for some reason, when people were forming the New Testament, the book that they wanted to put first was Matthew. It wasn't written first, but they put Matthew first. And I think that, that, it's, that was a good choice because of the way that it begins. Now, I know genealogies seem boring, right? You, you read some of the genealogies of the Old Testament, you could fall asleep halfway through, wake up five minutes later, and it'd still be going on, and you didn't miss a beat. It seems really, really boring. But actually, within a genealogy, there's a whole lot of hope, especially this one. I think the most hopeful way to begin the New Testament is with this genealogy. It fits perfectly. And so read with me. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abahiah, and Abahiah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, that may seem foreign and alien and weird and boring. But the reality is, is that each one of those names was a real person. They were a real person, and they each have a real story and a real past, and stuff happened to them. They had a life, and every single one of them was participating in a much larger story, in a story that pertains to you and me. It may seem boring, but these are, these are real people, real fallen, broken, sinful people. And they're a part of Jesus' genealogy. Part of Jesus' genealogy. Now, now, here's why it matters, and here's why the New Testament begins this way. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you, because of issues of family, decided to seek counseling and seek help? And you went to a therapist, and, and any therapist who's worth his salt has said to you, in order for you to go forward, you first need to go back. In order for you to deal with the emotional issues that you have in regards to your family, in order for you to move forward into emotional health, 
you need to go back and you need to deal with your family of origin and you need to deal with the sins that have been committed against you by family and you need to go back before you can go forward. You see, the Old Testament ends and there's 400 years of silence before the New Testament begins. And very wisely, Matthew is saying, hey, before we talk about this new thing that's happening, before we see what God is doing now, before we, we look at this new kingdom that's coming, before we go there, let's go back. And you see, this generation or this genealogy, it covers everything from Genesis through, through the end of, of the Old Testament, through, through Malachi and all of these people that are involved here. And what you see, there's three epochs of time that are covered by this, gen, this, uh, this genealogy. Matthew, Matthew points this out. The first epoch of, of, of time goes from Abraham to David. Abraham was, was born in a place called Babylon the Ur of the Chaldees. That's where God found him and called him and told him to go to this place that I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you this land. To your descendants, I'm going to give all of this land. But his story begins in Babylon. And so generation after generation, God fulfills his promise and he gives that, that land to his people. But then the, the, at the climax of this, there's this kingdom, this nation, Israel. And it's under a king, King David. And so there's this, this arch of Babylon to, to king and to kingdom. But then something happens after David and that kingdom begins to, to, to swirl down the drain and generation after generation until they go back to Babylon. They're conquered, they're defeated, they're exported, they're deported back to Babylon. And their story, they find themselves right where it began. And then at the beginning of this third epoch, there's, the, the, there's this remnant of God's people, and, and they begin to return. They come back to Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild, and that's the beginning of what would eventually lead to the new king, the new kingdom. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. But you see, there's this whole past that needs to be dealt with, and here's why we need to deal with it. People are asking the questions of, of Christians, not just is this true, they're asking the question, does it matter? It's not just, is this true, this story that we talk about, this, this Jesus that we talk about, it's not just, did he actually live, is that does he make a difference? Does it matter? Will this actually change my life? You see, this is the genealogy of Jesus. And as we're going to see this morning, it's a messed up genealogy. There is some sin and some horrific stuff in, in, in Jesus' family of origin. And the question needs to be asked, can Jesus save that? Because if Jesus can't save his own family, what hope does your family have? If Jesus can't rescue his own family, then what hope does my family have? Does this actually work and does it actually matter? And the short answer is yes. And that's where the hope is. So this morning, uh, we're, we're going to look at this genealogy and, and there's something that pops out of it that you may not notice at first glance. In most patriarchal societies, when you record a genealogy, the only names that are included are the names of men. In a patriarchal society, only the names of fathers and the names of sons. This includes the name of five mothers. And this is on purpose. Because it is through the lives of these women and, and how they conceived their children that you see so much of what God is doing despite the sin of humanity. And so we're going to spend our time this morning looking at those five women, and we're going to begin 
with a woman named Tamar. Her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. Now, we're not going to dive in deep into each one of those for, for sake of time, but I would encourage you to do this. Monday, look at Tamar. Tuesday, look at Rahab. Wednesday, look at Ruth. Thursday, look at Bathsheba. Friday, look at Mary. Read their stories because there's a lot of details that I'm going to have to leave out because children are in the room. Okay? There's a lot of details in here that for the sake of our audience, I'm going to omit. But you as an adult should look at those things just to see how deep they go. So our story is found in Genesis chapter 38. The great-grandson of Abraham was a guy named Judah. He's one of 12 brothers, and from, uh, from, from, from Judah, a whole tribe of this, this nation of Israel would come, the tribe of Judah. Well, Judah had three sons, and he gave a woman named Tamar to his oldest son. But according to the, to the passage, his son was a worthless, he was an evil man, and so God took his life. Now, in that culture, um, a woman, her whole identity was found in being married and being have and having children. You may not like that, but that's the culture of the day, right? That's the way that it was. And she uh, needed to have a husband and she needed to have children. All of her identity was swept up in this. So her husband dies and she's given to the secondborn. The second son of Judah, he too is a worthless man and God takes his life. Now, uh, this Leverite marriage thing was one where a brother was, was supposed to, uh, by his brother's wife, have a child so that his name would not die, so that his name would continue on, right? Well, Judah has a third son, but he's too young to get married. And so he tells Tamar, you can wait, go back to your father's house. When my third son is of age, I'll give him to you in marriage. Well, Judah is of the opinion that it's really Tamar's fault that his, his first two sons died. And that if he gives his third son to her, he too will die. And so he withholds his son. As the son ages, he comes to the, the, the right age to be married, but he does not allow Tamar and his son to marry. Around the same time, Judah's own wife dies. And he goes through a period of mourning, but after which he seeks consolation in the arms of a prostitute. So Tamar comes back into the picture. She knows that her father-in-law should have given the son, his third son, to her in marriage. He doesn't. But he knows that, that she is, he's looking for, for comfort. And so she disguises herself. She dresses herself up and she puts herself directly in his path. And, and Judah, not knowing that this is Tamar, procures her. Now he doesn't have money to pay for their time together. He doesn't have anything to give her. And so she says, I'm willing to accept an IOU. And so in Genesis 38, verse 18, we said this. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So three personal items that he had on him that she would hold until he could get back to her with proper payment. Okay? Three things. Signet ring would have been something that would have showed whose identity. The staff would have been, you know, peculiar to him and alone. But it's the cord that I want you to notice here. The cord. In, in, in uh, Hebrew, the, the word is pothil. It is a, is a masculine noun, and it, 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 it's a cord literally, but figuratively it means twisted. 
What it probably was was like a bracelet, like an armband. It would have gone on the forearm or would have gone around the bicep, but a piece of metal that was likely woven together of mul multiple metals. But it's this, this cord and this, this twisted band that would have gone around his arm. Now, um, she disappears with all three of those items. Three months later, uh, it's found out that she's pregnant. And Judah decides that she's been unfaithful and that according to the law of the day, he's expecting her to be executed publicly as an adulteress because she was supposed to remain chaste for his third son, though he withheld him. Well, uh, Tamar sends a note to Judah containing the three items, saying, uh, the father of, of the child that I'm carrying is the owner of these three articles. Judah realizes who she is, what he's done, and he declares, she's more righteous than I. And so he takes her into his home. He never knows her intimately again, and he raises her and her two sons, or takes care of her and her two sons, which are twins, and their names were Perez and Zerah. Perez is the eldest. Now, think about how it is that Perez came into existence. What were the circumstances that led to this baby being born? Evil sons, lies, deception, lust. I mean, the list could go on. But, but sins of one person committing against another person and against God, like the, the result of, of Perez having a life, it's, it's because of sin. It's not because of, of love. Or it's not because of righteous acts. It's not because of people doing the right and chaste and, and noble thing. It's because of sin. And yet, through this sin, there, there begins this, this twisted cord of redemption that's going to move through this family. That's Tamar. Let's talk about Rahab. So 400 years after Perez... The nation of Israel has become just that, a nation. And Judah has become a whole tribe within that nation. I mean, Judah probably numbers in the hundreds of thousands of people at this point. This is a people that has been uh, recently redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, and it's been brought across the desert, and it's about to enter into the promised land, that land that God promised to give to Abraham. And, and it has a new leader, and the, and the leader's name is Joshua, and you, you find Rahab's story in the first six chapters of a book after his name. So Joshua's the new leader, and he's standing on the east side of the Jordan River, and he's looking across the river, and there's the city of Jericho, and it stands in the way. It is the first obstacle in taking this land that, that God has promised to them. And so he sends some spies. He sends the spies in to, to find out what it is that the people are up against, and, and the people of Jericho find out that there's spies in the land, and so they begin a door-to-door -door search for them. But the spies are taken in by a woman named Rahab, a prostitute, and she hides them because she has heard about the Israelites. She's heard about their gods. She's heard about what this God did to the Egyptian gods, and she's afraid. And she knows that God is on these people's side and that when these people come against Jericho, Jericho will fall. And will she be saved or will she not? And so she, she, she goes in and enters into an oath with these spies. She, she, she demands that, that they agree to save her and spare her life and the life of her family. And so we read this in Joshua chapter 2, 17 through 19. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. 
Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your mother or your father and mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of the house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. There is this agreement that's made between the spies and this woman. And he says, bring everybody into your house and then take a, a scarlet colored cord and hang it out of your window. Now the word cord there is, is different. The word cord there is actually a feminine noun. It's tikvah. And it has a literal meaning, which is cord, but it has a figurative meaning, and that is hope. Hope. And so Jericho is attacked. And this cord is hung out the window, and the Israelites destroy every man, woman, and child in the city of Jericho except for this family. Except for this family. They were saved, they were spared, and they were brought into the people of Israel. And Rahab marries a guy named Salma, and they have a son named Boaz. And her family is saved. But look at the circumstances for, for how this Boaz came into existence, for how this baby was born. Bloodshed, war, destruction. I mean, this, this is pretty bad. It is the sins of people against God. And it's God's retribution against those people in war. I mean, this is bloodshed. That's how Boaz comes into existence. And yet, this scarlet cord, this twisted scarlet cord of hope moves that much further. Now look at Ruth with me. Like Rahab, uh, Ruth was not an Israelite. But Ruth was a Moabite. And that's important to understand. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were the enemies of Israel. So before they entered into the Promised Land, 40 years approximately, Moses, the, the first leader of the Israelites, he sent spies into the land as well. Go and search out the land. See what the land is like. And they come back with this incredible report that it's beautiful. It's productive. And yet, there's giants there. And there's no way that we can defeat the peoples of that land. And God is saying, I just took you out of Egypt. I just took you out of the one superpower on the planet. I just took you from the biggest, fiercest army in the world. And I've destroyed them. And you don't trust me to give this to you. So I won't give it to you. There's only one of you, uh, what, his name was Caleb. There's only one of them that said, we have God on our side, let's go for it. And God says, so Caleb, Caleb's gonna get to live, but I'm gonna wait till the rest of this generation is dead before I take, take you into the promised land. 40 years. 40 years they spend wandering the desert because they didn't believe that God could do what he said he was gonna do. And in that 40 years, they encountered this people group called the Moabites. And at first they go to them, with the question or with the ask, can we simply travel through your territory and can we buy food from you? God didn't want to destroy the Moabites. In fact, the Moabites were sort of uh, far removed cousins, so to speak, from the Israelites. Uh, Abraham had a nephew named Lot and it's from Lot that the Moabites came. So distant family relatives, so to speak. And, and, and they had no intention of harming the Moabites or taking over their country or doing anything like that. They just wanted to pass through and buy food. And the Moabites said, no. 
No. And in fact, um, they wanted to destroy the Israelites. They couldn't do it militarily, so they hired a witch doctor. They hired a guy named Balaam to try to put a curse on the Israelites. And every time he tried, God would interfere and say, no, 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 you're going to put a blessing on them instead. You're going to put a blessing on them. But, but here this animosity between these two people groups begins, the Moabites and the Israelites, and it endures through almost all of the Old Testament. In fact, if you remember that the beginning of that third epoch of time where people come from Babylon, that remnant comes back to rebuild Jerusalem. They come back to Jerusalem and they rediscover the law and they find this written in it in Deuteronomy 23, 2 through 4. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Are you getting that they can't enter the assembly of the Lord? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Bethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. The Moabites were the enemies of Israel. And so at, at that time, they decided we're going to separate ourselves from the Moabites. We won't, we won't worship their gods. Uh, we'll divorce them if we are married to them. We'll separate ourselves from them in order to be holy and pure before God. Now, that's a, that's a long time afterwards. We go way before that, way before that, and, and, and the Israelites have entered the land. They've just newly taken the land, right? Uh, Rahab uh, gives birth to Boaz. In that generation, they've taken the land, they've secured it, and there's a man named Elimelech. And we find this story in the book of Ruth. Elimelech is of the tribe of Judah. He lives in a place called Bethlehem. Hopefully that rings some bells for you lives in a place called Bethlehem, but things are hard and, and times are tough and there's a famine. And so he decides to go somewhere else to start over with his family. He goes to Moab. He goes to live among the Moabites. I mean, he, in a way he's deserting. In a way he's defecting to go to live with the enemy. And this is not okay, but he goes. And he's there for some time because we see that his sons grow up. They get married to Moabite women. They have every intention of staying, but then Elimelech dies, and then his sons die. And so Naomi is left all on her own, and she decides, I'm going back home. I'm going to Bethlehem. And she begins the journey. And at first, her Moabite daughters-in-law say, we'll come with you. But she says this to them at the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, 12 through 14, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope that even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Notice what it says in verse 12 there. There's this word, hope. If I should say, I have hope, right? That's that word tikva which literally means cord, which figuratively means hope. And Naomi is saying, I don't have a thread of hope of providing a husband for you. You could stay here and you could get remarried. But if you come with me, I don't have a thread of hope of finding a husband for you. You're Moabites. You're not allowed in the assembly of God. Not only that, but it feels like God's got a curse against me anyway because of everything that I've lost. There's not a shred of hope. So what happens is, is Orpah leaves, but Ruth clings to her, and Ruth says to her, 
I leave behind my people. I leave behind my family. I leave behind my gods. I go where you go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'll be buried where you're buried. I'm going with you. And she does. And upon return from Bethlehem, there's this love story that unfolds. And Ruth meets Boaz. And in the end, they're married. And there's this little baby boy bouncing on Naomi's lap. This woman who said she had no thread of hope, right? For, for Ruth, a Moabite, then the enemy of God's people is married and she has a home and she has a husband and she has a child and God has done all of this for his enemy. He did all of that for his enemy. You see what's going on here. There's this little boy, Obed, and you see the circumstances that he's born into. How Elimelech betrayed his people and betrayed his God and, and, and went to live elsewhere. And you see the, the disobedience of his sons and marrying women they weren't supposed to. And you see this, this, all of this inability to believe that God will do or God will provide. And yet, and yet through all of this pain, I mean, there's natural disaster in this story when you read it. Like there's all sorts of negative stuff. And yet when you get down to it, here is this bouncing baby boy that is the result of so much human sin and brokenness. And yet, it's one more step, one more movement forward of this family as this, this twisted, scarlet thread of hope moves from one generation to another generation. And then we get to Bathsheba. Matthew doesn't even call her Bathsheba. He says, the wife of Uriah. And he's doing that on purpose. He wants us to make a connection with Uriah more than we make a connection with her. Uriah. He was a friend of David's. His name literally means flame of Jehovah. And the story goes like this, that, that at the height of, of, of Israel and Judah, one united kingdom working together, living peacefully together uh, under the rule and reign of King David, everything seems to be going well and they're being led by a good king unlike the previous guy, Saul. He's, he's supposed to be this king after God's own heart. When we look at Scripture, it seems like of all the people who knew God and, and had a relationship with God, he's the one that seems to, to have modeled the best kind of, of life for us, and yet we see he sins so horribly. The story goes, it's found in 2 Samuel 11, that when kings were supposed to go out to war in the springtime, they were supposed to go reclaim territory that may have been lost during the winter. They were supposed to go out to war. David stayed behind, and he left his generals in charge. And he was bored, and he was up on his roof, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing, and he wanted her. And it didn't matter that he was married to several women and had a lot more concubines, and it didn't matter that she was married. He wanted her. And so he called for her, and he had her. The result is that she conceived. She became pregnant. She sent word to David. And so now all of a sudden, his adultery with her is going to be found out unless he does something. And so he recalls her husband, Uriah, from the battle. And he does everything he can to try to get Uriah to be intimate with his wife so that, so that his sin can be covered. But Uriah says, all my buddies are on the front lines. All my, all my friends are sleeping in foxholes. I'm not going to come home and relax while they're, while they're fighting. And so he doesn't. And so David sends him back. And with his own hand, he communicates a message to, to the general, to, 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 Boa, uh, uh, to, to one of David's generals, that 
that in the, in the intensest of fighting, your eyes should be placed where the battle is the worst, and then people should pull back from him and allow the enemy to kill him. In other words, David has Uriah killed. David has the flame of Jehovah snuffed, extinguished. He murders him. He murders him. Now, a prophet Nathan confronts David, and there's genuine repentance. But there's still consequences. The first consequence is this, this, this child that is conceived dies. The other consequences pertain to, to David's other children. And you see in there, there's incest and sexual assaults and murder. And that just keeps getting worse as the generations go on until ultimately the whole people's deported to Babylon because of what David does, because of the David sin. Well, David marries Bathsheba and they have another child, Solomon. But look at the consequences under which Solomon was born. Lust, adultery, murder. And look at the sins committed that led to the birth of this individual. And yet, God's still moving the story along. This twisted cord of hope keeps moving forward despite the human attempt to extinguish an image bearer's life. Despite everything done in order to destroy and to attack the very image of God through all of this. It keeps moving forward. And now we come to Mary and things change. Mary's not in the Old Testament. Her story is only found in the New. This is, this is a brand new character in the story, and there's a significant change that's going to happen here. What's interesting, first of all, that we notice about Mary is that the line of David, it runs through Joseph, and Joseph is mentioned, but he doesn't take center stage. Instead, it says that Joseph is the husband of Mary. In other words, Mary takes center stage. In all the other places, the, the mother was said to be the wife of somebody else or the, the mother of somebody else. She takes sort of second fiddle, but here Mary takes center stage. And Joseph, he's the one who takes the supporting role. And it's Mary. And so we read Matthew Chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. We, we saw how the birth of Obed took place. We, had, we saw how the book, birth of, of Perez take place, and they were all sinful disasters. What's going to happen this time? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Well, of course she was. Before they came together, she was pregnant. That just fits what we've already seen. That's like Tamar. I mean, that's like Bathsheba. Like, that's all the women in the story, right? Of course she got pregnant out of wedlock. But wait. Before they came together, she was found to be from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, there's a new character involved in the story. There's a new parentage being interjected, and it's a divine one. All of a sudden, God himself is inserting himself into the story, personally participating in it. It continues. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
Well, that's different too. You'd expect like Judah, he would, he would expect to kill her and see her publicly executed, right? But it seems like he's, he's better than that. He's, he's honest. He's, he, he, he's courageous. He's, he's tender. He's a good man. That's different. And her husband being just man, and in verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so here this guy is, decides to obey and to submit and to adopt a child that is not his own. But you see, here's Mary. Very different than anyone we've seen in this genealogy. God is doing something new here. But here's the reality. Before we can go forward into the New Testament, before we need to can see what's going on, we have to deal with the sins of the past. And here is a very broken, messed up, sinful, fallen, broken family. Can Jesus redeem that? Because if Jesus can't redeem those people, he can't redeem you. He can't redeem you. And so how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, he does what nobody else can do because he's God. God takes on flesh. Jesus is fully man, fully God. As fully man, he understands exactly what it means to be a physical being just as you do. And he understands your emotions. He understands your desires. He was fully human. And yet he was fully God, which means that he was able to do what you and I can't do. He was able to be perfect and holy and pure and faithful to God the Father his entire life. Entire life. So that he could take that perfect life and offer it as a perfect sacrifice. So that he could go to the cross and he could make that exchange where he takes your sin and you get his righteousness. You see, that's what Jesus did for his own family. For all of the sins that you see throughout here. For the murder and for the... Uh, the the disobedience and the lust and the adultery, like, like all this stuff that we just listed, Jesus goes to the cross and he pays for it. He dies for it. The wrath of God against all of those sins, he experiences in, in his own flesh. He dies for it. He pays. You see, at the cross, our punishment for sin is removed. You see, that's not where the story ends. As God raises him from the dead and he ascends to heaven, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. And by his Spirit, he gives us the power to, to what? To overcome sin. To overcome. So, so the, the habits of the past, for the sins of the fathers and the sins of the mothers, you don't have to repeat. You don't have to continue in. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome sin. See, there's hope from the punishment of sin. There's hope from the power of sin. And, and someday we have the hope from the presence of sin is when he returns, he's gonna make all things right. See, he does that for his, whole, his, his own family and he does that for your family. He does it for humanity. And there's hope as a result of that. But I want you to notice something about this. Do you see how beautiful a plan is? You might look at these, these stories and think, like, this just happened. This was, this was random occurrence. You know, this is just the fall of, of humanity. This is sick people doing sick things, and, and like God doesn't have his hand in any of this. It's just all random. And, and, and the reality is, is no. That at each step of the way, 
God's hand is there. God's hand is moving. God is working. He's pushing things along. Things are moving forward. I mean, think about it this way. Think about the cord of Judah, that band around his, his, his wrist, right? That cord of Judah given to, to Tamar, what was it? Twisted metal, entwined metal, a picture of something greater. It's a picture of Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, humanity and divinity are entwined together into one being. It's a picture of Jesus. When you look at the story of Rahab and there's this scarlet cord hanging out the window. It's this, this, this picture of hope. It's a banner of salvation because everybody who is in the house is saved. That's Jesus. And if you will rally underneath that banner and if you will gather your family in him and if you will submit to him and embrace what he's done for you at the cross, then his banner over you is salvation. That's Jesus. And when you look at the words of Naomi, she says, I don't even have a thread of hope. And yet at the end of the story, there's hope existing in her lap that God provides a husband for his enemy. How many times have you heard that the church is the bride of Christ? And who is our husband but Christ? He's that thread of hope. You look at the story of of Uriah. He's that, that flame of Jehovah that was extinguished by David. And what did we do to Jesus? Our sin nailed him to a cross and we withdrew and let the enemy take him. We, with our sin, with our rebellion, with our disbelief and our disobedience, killed the Son of God. But that wasn't the end. See, that's not the end. We couldn't extinguish the flame of God. So he ascends, and then he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. You see Jesus in this story. And when you look at Mary, Mary herself, she carries within her body that cord that connected humanity to divinity and she nourished him for nine months inside of her womb in order to give birth to hope. Do you see God's plan? Do you see him at work all along the way? And you might think that now that's random or that's that's just a story it's not and the reality is is as Jesus redeems his own family can Jesus can redeem your family and you look at all the pain and all the struggles and all the hardship that you've experienced in family it's not random it happened for a reason there's purpose behind the pain and the pain is to point you to hope it's to, it's to point you through your own brokenness a man who wants to has saved you you have hope. It's a person. See, we have hope. The question is, is do we, do we store up that hope in ourselves or do we allow that hope to flow through us to other people? Do we let it go and do we, we point other people in, in that direction? See, the world is they're not just asking the question, is it true? They're asking, does it work? Does it make a difference? Christian, has Jesus made a difference? Does the world see it? We do have hope. 
And I hope that, that as you, you, you go into this holiday season and you experience times with family that are going to be difficult and negative and hard, that you will hold those up and compare them to what Jesus has done for you. Hold what Jesus has done up and remind yourself of what you have because of him. Your identity isn't found in the dysfunction of your family. Your identity is found in what Jesus has done for you. Well, this is the first week of Advent. And Advent uh, is one of those traditions, and it varies by, by different churches, and so you might experience different things for us. Um, as we, we go through it this year, we're going to light four candles that remind us of, of truths that Jesus, uh, who he is for us. Next week, we're going to look at, at joy. And we're going to see that, that we, because of Christ, have joy despite the difficult circumstances that we face. The next week, we're going to look at peace. That because of Jesus, we can have peace with one another and we can have peace with God. And finally, we'll look at love. As we examine two different kinds of kings, the king's men and the king of God and we'll see the love that makes all the difference in the world but today for the sake of, of, of Advent we light the candle of hope because of Jesus we have hope and I pray that you understand that this morning and I pray that you'll live out of the power of that this morning I pray and we'll continue in worship Heavenly Father Lord thank you again for the love that you've provided us through your son. Thank you for the plan. You put it together and you continually worked it out. You didn't take your hand off the wheel. You never forgot us for a second. It wasn't random. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't... It was just your will. Your plan has been perfect. And the truth is, is what, what Jesus' genealogy shows us is that human, human beings are capable of great sin. We are, we are capable of great atrocity against you and against one another. But even the greatness of our sin doesn't surpass the greatness of your love. And nothing in any of these stories thwarted your plan. No sins in any of these people's lives derailed what you were doing. You used it and you moved it along in order to bring about your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for submitting to the plan and thank you for coming and, and doing what we could not do. Thank you for dying and thank you for rising. And Holy Spirit, I pray that we would live out of, out of your power and your strength, recognizing that we are a people of hope but that we desire to see this world changed by that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.